and amen. See, sometimes we can get so caught up in just coming and sitting and hearing a message, but we forget that we're in a room where the presence of God is. Do you agree with that? And he wants to work, and he will work if we will surrender ourselves and seek and, and find him. And that's what we see here in Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. And we're, we're going to look at how the Israelites sometimes were not seeking the right things, and they did not find the right things, and they end up getting themselves in trouble. Um, just to catch you up, the Israelites are making their way. They're finally out of Egypt. They've had the Passover. This is in your readings. They've moved through Passover, and now they find themselves out in the desert. Moses brings them back. Now, there is possibly about 1.5 million Hebrew Israel, Israelite people that God is bringing out of Egypt, and he's trying to get them to the promised land. Now, 1.5 million people, right? How many teachers do we have in the room? How hard is it just to maintain your little 18, 15, 20, 50, however many you have in your class? If you've got a class of 50, talk to us. We want to pray for you. Um, how hard is it to try to get? How many parents do we have in the room? How difficult is it to get two of the kids dressed on a Sunday morning, right? Like on Sunday morning, you have a lot to come to church and confess sometimes when you have kids. <laughs> I was ready to kill them this morning, you know what I mean? Could you imagine leading 1.5 million plus people from a place that they've grown comfortable, that they've known, their family's known for 400 years, they've never known anything outside of slavery. They've never known anything outside of Egypt. And Moses doesn't just have the task of guiding them and directing them and giving them point A to point B directions, but he's also got to do something to develop a community. They, they've, not, they've never had their own laws. They, they've been told when to work, how to work, when to sleep, where to sleep, what to eat. They've not had any freedoms. And now what we see is the freedom is gone. Now they're being called to have to go and do some things on their own. So God has to give them what we would call the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. We, we know those, right? And so God gives Moses these commandments to say, this is what we're going to use to govern the people because they don't have any rules and regulations. They, everything they know is Egypt. And, and how many of you know it's really, Egypt, it's really easy to get the people out of Egypt, but it was difficult for Moses to get the Egypt out of the people? Because they, were, they oftentimes were trying to run back to the comforts and the things they, they knew instead of trying to grab hold of what it was that God was trying to get them to. So God gives them these rules. He sets this standard. This is how we live. These are the, the rules that we're going to maintain and, and keep in order for us to have fellowship with one another and with those around us. So he gives them what we call the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to give you some backstory of why this is important, because if you have this many Jewish people who've lived their whole lives in a culture as slaves, you've got to start getting this out of them to, to pump in the new, what God has for them, developing them into his people, because they're fixing to go and possess a brand new land. And you can't bring your baggage from old land to new land, because then you just have Egypt part two. And so these rules these regulations, these, this covenant that God is building with his people, he called the law. And the Hebrew people would find out that the law, even though it's only 10, would not be that easy to follow. That they're going to find themselves breaking these 10 over and over. They're going to feel helpless. It reminds me, when I was a kid, 
was about seven, eight years old, we went to my grandmother's house, and she got a pool. And we were on the deck, and it was me and my cousins and my sister, and we were just goofing off. I didn't know how to swim at this point. And um, so my cousin thought the best way for me to learn how to swim was just to push me into the pool. Um, so that's what he did. Uh, so loving and nice. He's a doctor now. And uh, <laughs> now he cares for people. But he, I remember him just shoving me in the pool. And there was a thought when I was in the air of, I don't know how to swim. This is not good. And it wasn't the shallow end. It was the deep end. And I remember going under that water and trying to bob and trying to you know, I felt like a, flit, a fish, like just fought anybody. I'm just trying to get any kind of help that I can get. And then he decides not only would he try to kill me, he would save me all in the same day. But I, I can remember when I was underwater, I felt helpless. There's nothing that I can do. You ever, you ever been there? In those situations where you feel absolutely helpless, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. I knew in that moment I couldn't, there's nothing I can, I can't swim. I can't save myself. And if I black out, I can't give myself CPR. What am I going to do? I felt completely helpless. That is what the law does to us. The Ten Commandments do to It makes us feel helpless. And if, and if you don't feel that right now, I'm, I'm going to build a case for that in just a minute. Because the law was put into place to make us feel helpless and for us to have to create a dependency on God. What was Israel's dependency? Their dependency was on Egypt, a nation. God is trying to redirect their attention that your dependence is not on a nation. It is on a God who is sovereign and controls that nation. Y'all hear me? Because November is coming. You hear me? We, we serve a lamb, not an elephant or a donkey. One of those is way more powerful. You know what I mean? And so this, this commandment, all these ten, don't lie, don't steal, keep the Sabbath day holy, you know, don't have any other gods before me. You know what I'm talking about? Did you know that these first four commandments that God's going to give his people, the first four of these are about our relationship with each other. They're all about us, all about how we would work with one another, all how we would have a community together. And then the other six, or excuse me, the first four are about our relationship with God. The other six are about our relationship with one another. So you got the first ones that are about our relationship going up, and then you have the ones with each other about how this is going together. Some people believe that the reason there were two tablets that these laws were written on, because one of the tablets may have been the laws that were about us, and the other tablet would have been about the laws that, um, that God had for us and him to establish that relationship. And so what he's saying is, is that when once our relationship with God is in order, guess what happens? It begins to spill over into the relationships of the people around us. So remember when Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, what? Did he, did he pick one of the ten? He says something interesting. Love the Lord and love others. What did he just do? Jesus just summed up the entire New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament. He just, or the, let me get, I'm still on jet lag. <laughs> he sums up the entire Ten Commandments with those two things. Love God, that's the first four. Love others, that's the rest. And that's what he's doing. But what were they trying to do? They're trying to trick him because if he would have said the wrong thing, 
they were going to kill him right there. But they had to walk away from the whole conversation because Jesus, as Jesus does, immediately just kind of out, outsmarts them, right? Imagine that. And so what's interesting is that if we're, if we're careful about cultivating this, this relationship with God, that if, we're, if we approach him, we follow these commands, we keep the Sabbath holy, we worship him, we don't have idols, then what happens is we will, we will not really have to have the conversation about these other commandments because if my relationship with him is where it needs to be, then it will be the same with other people, Right? If somebody's bitter, mean, angry, what does that tell you about their relationship with God? Because that's not a reflection of God, right? God's not bitter. He's not angry. So it's a direct reflection. Because you and I are plagued by a thing called sin. We have a disposition, right? A predisposition to sin. We were born that way. We were born sinners, Right? I need y'all to understand that part. Would y'all all agree with that? Like, our parents did not teach us, hey, I want to show you how to steal something. Right? They didn't teach us what you should do is take this pair of scissors in your K3 class and she should go cut that little girl's hair without her knowing. Right? True story. Um, they didn't teach us how to do these things. Hey, I'm going to teach you how to talk back and, and have a smart mouth towards me when I ask you to do something. Anybody teach your kids those things? No. Thank, thank God for place, things like Bluey, the TV show, if you haven't watched it, you know. Um, we, teach, we have to teach our children the opposite, right? Like, here's how you share. We tell the truth. We tend to forget those things when we become adults. But these are the things that we try to ingrain very early on. Why? Because it's not in our nature. If you cut me off in traffic, my nature is not to be, oh, man, bless you. Bless, I pray blessings and that's not my first response, is it? My first response is I, I hope your tire goes flat. You know, I hope you get caught by the cops. I hope you get a ticket. I pray that the gnats just come and attack you in the summer. That's our first response, isn't it? Why is that our first response? Because that, that is the way that we were born into sin. This is why we say this, is that it's really easy for us to act like a Christian. Would you agree with that? But would you find it more difficult to react like a Christian? There's a, there's a big difference. Because I can look like Jesus sitting in the car, but when the person cuts me off, it's a different ballgame. Until you can get that fixed, you should stay off of, you know, anywhere going to Somerville or Ashley Phosphate or downtown in the summer. Until the Lord works on that. So we, we have to be in a place to where these relationships with God allows it to pour into healthy relationships with one another. Let me, let me give you a couple of things on the law. These, these Ten Commandments, the law is a map showing us how to be perfect, right? And we look at these Ten Commandments and we would think, these are really easy. These are really easy commandments. But it, it shows us how we're to be perfect, let me ask you a question. If we looked at these 10 and we took a quiz this morning, would you say that consistently you obey all these commands? Consistently? Or would you say, man, is there going to be, and this is what I always hear, uh, you'll get about question number three on the quiz and somebody's hand will go up. Hey, is there any bonus questions or bonus points? <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? 
The Ten Commandments are just this big list showing us how to be perfect. It's a map. If you want to be perfect, this is the things that you have to do. It actually shows us what God demands from us. This is what he wants. This is what he's asking. So it's a map, but it's also it's a mirror. The law is also a mirror that's reflecting our imperfect condition. Because when I look at the law, and I'm seeing all these things, and I'm asking myself, am I consistent with the things that I'm doing? I have to go and say this. Ooh, I messed that one up today, so nope, not that one. Uh, nope, not that one. Okay, go ahead and check that one. And then what happens is you really you, you start to reflect and realize, I'm not really good at keeping this law thing, right? And the law shows us who we need to be and that we can't be it. We can't be what the law commands us. So it tells us what to do, but the law gives us no ability to be able to follow its instructions. Do you feel hopeless now that I've said that? You should. This is where God wants you to be, to feel hopeless, because what is the purpose of the law? For us to build our dependency on him. If I can't do it, I've got to go to the one that can, and through him. The law is not a bad thing, because you would go, well, if it's a reflection and it's showing me I'm bad, is the law a bad thing? Actually, it's not. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 7 that the law is holy and, and this commands is holy and it's just and it's good. The law is a, a good thing. So when we study the law, there's a few things you need to understand. Number one, the law is good. We need it. Wouldn't you agree that we need laws? Okay, if you don't agree that we need rules and regulations and you don't watch college football and understand what the NIL is, right? <laughs> or transfers, but the law is good. Paul says that in Romans chapter 7, the law is good. When King David speaks of the law in the Old Testament, he says it is good. He says that the law restores my soul. It's a good thing. And in and of itself, the law is good because the law delivers, but the law is also inflexible. And here's what we mean by that. The law doesn't move. It is what it is. Now, in our culture, we like to equate the law with morality. And so what we'll say is we see the commandments as kind of a moral code and maybe a recommendation on what we should do. But if it doesn't, if I don't feel good about it, I just need to go with my feelings and, and don't worry about the law. I can interpret that however I want. You know what I'm talking Like, I'm not talking about our society because that doesn't happen here in our society. And you better be careful making decisions on how you feel because Jesus said that the heart is wretched and does not do very well with making decisions. And I'd ask this question, when's the last time that you've gone to God to ask instructions before you've gone to ask somebody else? Let that sit and simmer for just a second. Morality falls short of what God demands from us. Always does. Morality is, a con is conditional based on, in our, in our culture, on how it makes us feel. Everything is subject to how I feel. That's why everybody gets their feelings hurt. We call them snowflakes. They get their feelings hurt about everything. Y'all been around? Y'all seen this? This is hitting home. If my feelings are hurt, then it must not be the right thing. Uh, we, we call that telling the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Like, you're a sinner. <laughs> and we're broken. Well, that hurt my feelings. Well, it hurt Jesus even more and is crucified because of you. How about that? <laughs> so how do you know when this is happening? Think about, think about it. Just think about parenting. How flexible 
As a parent, is your moral compass when compared to your children's? Well, I never let my kids do this, but, but I will. Are you strict with what they say, what they watch, what they eat, who they hang out with, the things they text, the things they put out on social media? Is your standard for them different than what is different from you? Is it the same? The law doesn't change because we don't, we don't like it. it. It is what it is. It, it still applies, even if I don't... Well, God, I, I just... I really... Sometimes I just need to not tell the truth so that I don't get in trouble, and it just makes me feel better. And he goes... All right, well, if you want to pay for your sin, you can pay for it, and you will, because if you do not ask Jesus to save you, who's paid for your sin, then you will end up paying for your sin. And when you pay for your sin, you end up in hell. That's the price. Which leads to the next thing. Law is devastating. Y'all feel comforted this morning? You feel really positive? You're going to in just a minute. But you've got to realize how bad it is before you can realize how good it is. Sometimes you don't know how good you got it until you realize how bad it is. You know what I'm saying? The law is devastating because what does God require of me? The, the law is, is what he demands from us. This is what he wants. It's the, the perfect fulfillment of the law. You, you've got to do it all. You have to have consistency, not like I break it once or twice a week. You can't break it at all because God deals with justice based on who the sin is against. And who is our sin against? It's against God. You know, the Bible says that we, if you're not a believer, it says that you were once the enemy of God. I don't want to play on any other team. I don't want to be in that category. Because when we sin, our sin is against a holy and just God. And it's devastating. When we take the law and we make it an issue of morality, we cheapen it. And one of the biggest dangers in the church today is cheap law. Where cheap law is when we think forgiveness comes without repentance. We think that saying I'm sorry is a substitute for I repent. It's not. Well, man, I'm sorry. There's a difference between an apology and repentance. Because repentance is I'm not doing this again. Like, we live in a world that I've been following, like a bunch of pastors, like people that I used to look up to who have fallen. They, they, they tried to stick with the morality code and they've broken it. And it's a mess. And they all issue letters of apology for what they've done to their church. And I'm thinking, that ain't going to float. Where's the repentance? Because an apology will change you in the moment. Because an apology is meant to change the other person on how they view you. Repentance is to change you. And there's a big difference. And we should be on our faces before God in repentance over our sin. If, if our sin is directly against him, then we should be in a place of constant repentance with the Father. So I'm sorry, it's just not a substitute. Believing if I try harder and I tame my behaviors, then we'll be okay. We can't tame our behaviors. Every time that I think I've got it under control, something dumb happens and I realize I don't got it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to get mad when people cut me off. Y'all say, why do you keep bringing that up? Because it's an issue. <laughs> and I think it ain't going to be a big deal. I'm trying to get home last night, and every slow driver in the world is in front of me. 
God's testing me. He's been testing me all week. It's not in our cards to obey the law. This is that disposition. No matter how much we think that we, we want to obey it and that we can obey it to the fullest extent and, and we can be perfect, we can't. All that to bring you to this point. What has God done for Israel so far? Moses, born and raised in Pharaoh's house, that wasn't by coincidence. He kills an Egyptian out of anger. He has to flee. He goes to Midian. He becomes a shepherd. He spends 40 years out in Midian. He notices a burning bush. The bush talks to him, tells him, it's God in the bush. You need to go to Egypt, go back to the place that you came from, free my people, get all the people out, bring them. After these 10 plagues are going to happen, God gives him Passover. He gives him a substitutionary atonement because he says if you put the lamb's blood over the door, the Passover, you'll be saved. They were, and they're wandering in the desert. They're, some of them are in discontentment because they said if we could just go back to Egypt because they didn't know how good they had it in the moment. And in Exodus 19, there's a series of events that happen. The people want to go up on the mountain that Moses is on to be in the presence of God. They want to meet God, and God ends Exodus 19. He gives them a warning. He says, you do not want to come up on this mountaintop because you can't handle what's on the top of this mountain. There's a reason I called Moses and didn't call you. You need to stay where you are. He says that you're not clean, and then God breathes the law into existence. So he says this in Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. He says, I am. Time out. Does those words look familiar to you? Because when Moses said, who, who do I tell them? He's talking to the burning bush. Who do I tell them has sent me? He says, you tell them I am has sent you. So now look who's talking to him. God's using that name to identify himself to the people. Then God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord, your God, your God. I am your God, listen to this, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of a place of slavery before he gives them the law, what is he doing? He's telling them, I am your God, and I love you, and remember what I've done for you. I could have left you in Egypt. I could have gotten you out of Egypt and killed you off in the desert. But I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of a place of slavery. He's saying that I, I am your God. He, he is our God. He is your God, there's no escaping God. The Bible tells us that every knee will one day confess. You know that word confess means to verbally declare. Every, and people can say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. There will come a day that their mouth will have to open and confess that he is Lord. And at that point, it'll be too late. Because that's them paying for their sin. That they didn't hand over to Jesus. There's no escaping so God's answering the question here in verse 2 that probably we have asked for generations is who do we belong to? And God's saying, I am the Lord, your God. That's good news. Our God is personal. Our God, that's why I'm saying when we pray, it's not thrown up into the heavens hoping that God catches it. He is right here as if we're talking to one another right now. That should change the way you pray, by the way. But God's having to remind them of his goodness and his provision in their lives, because you and I are like Israel. We, we're quick to forget God's goodness and his provisions, aren't we? Like, I'll forget. I can go through a moment, 
and I can get so distracted by the moment and feel so down about the moment and feel like we're just never going to get out of here, and I forget that God always has been. And sometimes you've got to remember where you are now. It doesn't seem like God's working, but he is. But you've got to let where your hope needs to be anchored to is what God's done for you in the past. Because that's what's going to get you through the next moment of understanding. So God in the law is saying, don't forget what I've done for you. That's a, that's a strong reminder for us as a church. Because we'll go, even as a body, we will go through seasons. As individuals, we will go through seasons. Do not forget that he is your God and what he has done for you. He says in verse 3, do not have any other gods beside me. Now you would think that God wouldn't have to say this to the people of Israel, wouldn't you? But where'd they come from? They came from a place of Egypt where they had a pantheon of all these gods. You pick, you choose what you want. You want to have a baby? There's a baby God. You want rain? There's a rain God. You want to have a big house? Go to big house God. There's all these gods. And what he was saying is, you don't need all those gods because, number one, those gods aren't real. I am. It was in his name. I will give you what you need. You don't need to be bringing other things into this relationship. So why would God have to say that? Because we're hardwired to take temporary things and treat them as if they have some type of eternal significance. And they're not. God goes directly to their heart in verse Three. This is about inwardly wanting to obey the law. The right way to read this verse is this, that there are never to be any idols ever, no exceptions. The right way to read that verse. An idol is going to be defined as anything that is more valuable to you than God is to you. You want a diagnostic? If it's taken away from me, does it create physical emotional, or spiritual anxiety that is seemingly irreparable if I take it away from you. If I grabbed your cell phone today and I just took it and you didn't know when I was going to give it back, if it creates physical, emotional, (laughs) or spiritual anxiety, you have an idol. And I'm not just picking on cell phones, because if you took my cell phone, I would be in panic. If you took your kids' sports away, if you took your Netflix documentaries away, if you walked away from those relationships that God's called some of you to walk away from, and it causes you, because this is not all just the physical, there's emotional pieces to this too that can be idols. Anything can be an idol. Anything that has more value than God is an idol. So if you, if you have something that if it were taken from you, because our kids can be our idols. You can love them and nourish them, and they're our kids. We steward them, but ultimately who, who do our children belong to? God. So anything in your life that would create physical, emotional, or spiritual anxiety when taken away from you, that is your idol. And God says, Do not have any other God beside me. Do not. It's God's kindness and God's goodness and God's grace that leads us to redemption. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. That it's the kindness of God that leads us to redemption. That he's not a mean, cruel God. 
He's not saying, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be around. I want you having all these other gods that you're worshiping because I'm jealous. He's, no, listen, I, I want you to know me. I want you to put your hope in me. There's another side to God that says that he annihilates his enemies. It's his wrath. His wrath is, is partnered with his love. You know, sometimes as a parent, there's a part of it that you, you love your children, but there's sometimes you've got to enact discipline, and that's the hard part, right? Like, it's called parenting, not parenting. Like, we have, and I know some of you are like, I don't do that with my kids. We know. Um, <laughs> there, there's a, I love y'all. Just making sure you're awake. No judgment. They, they, they go hand in hand, don't they? Like, I love my children, but there's times that there has to be a, a discipline for, for something to help correct them. It's not because, hey, daddy hates you. This is why you're going to have to sit in your room for 20 years, right, until you can ever talk to anybody else. You cannot know the reality of God's love without knowing the reality of his wrath. You have to know his wrath. This is why it says in verse 4, do not make an idol for yourself. Isn't that interesting that the verse 3, don't have any other gods, just to make sure that y'all understand, he goes, do not make an idol for yourself. He's talking to Israel. And whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters or underneath, God creates everything. And every time God creates, he says, it is what? It is good. It says it's very good. It's shalom. It's peace. It's good. But he knows that you and I will take good created things and we will worship them. We will worship them. And we will treat them as if those things are gods that will fulfill us consistently we will feel sufficient and everything will be good and we will worship all kinds of things in that nature won't we like is interesting i was i spent a couple of days in hendersonville tennessee if you don't know where hendersonville tennessee is uh, it's just outside of nashville it's it's I'll, I'll connect with both generations it's where johnny cash lived for you johnny cash people and it's where taylor swift lived for you taylor swift people and I was, uh, the place that I was staying, I noticed on the map that Johnny Cash and June Cash were buried right across the street. And I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, so I was like, well, I just need to go across the street to go pay my respects to Johnny Cash. So I did. I walked across the street, and I'm, I'm just, you know, seeing, I think this is the closest I've ever been to Johnny Cash. And a guy comes up and says, hey, man, could you get my picture? Which I thought, hey, that's a weird thing in the cemetery. Um, can you get my picture? And so we're talking, and uh, I said, where are you from? He said, man, I came all the way down from Canada. This is my bucket list to come get my picture at Johnny Cash's grave. Where'd you come from? I said, across the street. I'm staying right here at the Hyatt place. <laughs> it was like I just saw it, and I thought, oh, well, I'm here. I might as well go across and, and, and see it. But I thought, this dude, and it, he said that was the only reason he came. Drove all the way from Canada because he just, he had to see the grave at Johnny Cash. He loved him so, and I thought, what happens if we physically took that away, spiritually took that away, and emotionally took that away? Because it was like an idol. It's okay to love people. It's okay to follow people and be a fan of people, right? But when it becomes the idol, you will flock to it. We, we went into Nashville. Like, Nashville's not made for people my age. I know you're like, well, you're young. Mm -hmm. I don't think that anymore. We, got a, we go into downtown Nashville with our disciple huddles uh, that we were training with all week. And I realized I'm not 
I'm not made for nightlife. Like, we were just going to a nice little restaurant, but everything happened around me. I, my anxiety was through the roof. There were too many people, right? By the way, I went and had conversations with people I didn't know this week, just so you know. I, I pushed out my in, introvert self. <laughs> had dinner with people I didn't know. It was, it was, I felt energized. Um, then I came back home on the plane. It was like, nobody talked to me. And so, but we're, we're, we're walking to Nashville, and I'm like, I looked at the guy that was across from me, and I said, um, do you think this many people own cowboy hats and boots? Because I feel like we, we're not dressed for the occasion. Like, we have on Nikes and just T-shirts, and I mean, that, they got, he's got a full rhinestone cowboy outfit on. And like, this is Nashville, man. Like, everybody just dresses the part. They just play the part. Everybody here's trying to make it big, and they're just going to the saloons and just doing the Nashville thing. And it was funny, because when I was leaving the airport, I realized something. All those cowboy hats were hanging on the carry-on bag. They weren't wearing them anymore. They didn't have their boots on. Come on, if you're going to be a cowboy, be a cowboy. Right? <laughs> Learn to rope and ride. But what, what, did, that, what did that tell us? Here's, here's what it told me is that we will do anything for the idol. Like, we'll take things that are meant to be enjoyed and begin to worship. We will fall into that culture very quickly. It happened in Israel. It was a cow. That's what they worshipped. Remember that story? Moses goes up with the law to get the law. And what do they do? I don't think he's coming back. Hey, man, make us gods. Aaron, come on. I want to be a god. Let's do it. Aaron says, you know what? Got it. Take all your earrings, take your necklace, anything you got of gold, let's melt that bad boy down. We're going to make an idol. We're going we're to make ourselves a god. Now, what's wrong with a cow? Nothing, right? Beautiful. Animals. Love them. I mean, brisket, prime rib. I mean, let's, let's go. There's nothing wrong with a cow. But what did they do? They worshipped this cow. It was something that was created for good, but they turned it and created it to be a god. For Israel, it was a cow. What was really interesting is in Exodus chapter 32, uh, the story Moses finds out that they made a cow because he comes back down and Aaron's like, um, I threw a bunch of gold in and it came out like this. This is what happened. And Moses did not have, he had one of those leadership moments where it was like, just kill them now. It's, I can't. <laughs> I, was, I spent all this time. And here's what Moses does. Moses goes to God with it as we should. And he comes back and he says, you know what? I want you to take your little cow and I want you to throw your cow in the fire and you're going to burn it and you're going to melt that thing down to powder. You're going to get rid of it. And they're like, okay, I got it. So they melt it all down. Then he gives them the next instruction. I got you a protein shake. I want you to take that powder and you're going to put it in water and you're going to drink it because you're going to taste the sourness of taking something out of context. Could you imagine? Like you think God was serious about the sin? He was serious about this command. Don't make any. Don't make any idols. Don't. Don't do it. But for Israel, it's a cow. For us, it's other things, and we have to identify those things. Again, if it causes you physical, emotional, spiritual anxiety, when it's taken away, you have an idol. So God's pulled their hearts back. Now he's going to start unpacking these habits. He says this in verse 5. Do not bow in worship to them. Don't have any other gods before me. Do not make yourself any idols. And definitely do not bow down to any idols. And do not serve them. Bowing and serving is a behavior of the heart. Right? Um, 
this is known as a habit. Did you know that your heart will chase about the things that it cares about? This is why Sarah McLaughlin can come on TV and the arms of an angel song starts playing and she starts talking about adopting puppies. You don't even like dogs. The next thing you know, you've adopted 10 of them. <laughs> because your heart chases after what it begins to care about. And when our hearts chase after what they care about, it begins to form habits, good habits and bad habits. Your heart cares first and then your behaviors follow. It's never your behaviors and then your heart. It's, it's opposite. And we can, we can justify what we want with our mouths, but we cannot escape our behaviors. I can say how much this is. This is the person, I love Jesus, and then they go and cuss people out in the restaurant. Well, do you? Because it's easy for us to justify with our mouths, but we can't escape the behavior. And when it gets our time, energy, and resources, that is the very thing that we serve. Let me ask you this question. If you wanted to destroy yourself, just think about it from the enemy's standpoint. If he wanted to destroy you, what would you put in front of you to keep you from God? Job, friendships, money, power, time. What is it? She says, don't, don't bow down and worship these. Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's important to note that God is jealous, not envious. Jealous. To be jealous of is envy. To be jealous for is love. And God's not jealous of our petty gods. He's not intimidated by our petty little gods. He is jealous for his children because he knows what we're missing out on when we put all of our faith, hope, and trust in the things that are going to leave us and go away. He hates to see us run around wasting time on secondary gods that leave us without energy and leave us without time, and they just still kill and destroy. The law's primary purpose is to make us feel completely helpless, to create a need inside of us that we, when we stare at God's law, that we're lost and realize we can't save ourselves. And verse 5 continues. He says, bringing the consequences of the fathers, the iniquity of the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. No one can meet that demand. There's only one person that actually met that command perfectly, and that was Jesus who fulfilled the law. He did for us with the law what we could not do. Amen? We can't fulfill these things consistently. So Jesus steps in, and God accepts us because he accepted Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. That's why Jesus had to come and live a perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice to fulfill it on our behalf so that we couldn't. He paid for our sin. And if we do not let him pay for our sin, then we will. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, he made the one who did not know sin. He was perfect, had no sin. He says that he made him to be sin for us, that in him, not through us, by us, but in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? It took Jesus' sinless life to fulfill the law for us to be declared righteous. What does righteous mean? It, what does that mean? It means to be declared right. That, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner, but because of what Jesus has done for me, there is grace upon grace upon grace, and he loves us and has forgiven us. 
And then the last thing, he says, do not misuse. So everything that God demands, Jesus was. Let's just sum that up right quick. Here's the last thing. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Now, what is this talking about? Let's unpack it really quickly. It's not just going around. I mean, it is watch your mouth. Let's just say it that way. Watch your mouth what you say. But the bigger issue is not what's in our mouths, it's what's in our hearts. Well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And then you're so hateful to the server at lunch. I love Jesus, but then I steal company time. I love Jesus, but I'm constantly having to delete the history in my computer. He says, it's not just about what's in your mouth, it's what's in your heart, because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. See, we, we look at it for morality. This is not morality. The question I have for you this morning is, what is in your heart? And have you acknowledged that Jesus fulfilled this? These things that we can't do, we look back at the law as a mirror, and the reflection we get is we can't do this. But when I look to the cross, it tells me that God has already taken care of this, that it can be fulfilled because there is forgiveness every time we break the command. There's not a grace going wild, by the way, but it's every time that I break this, I fall in repentance, and I can always be assured that God says, I love you, I forgive you, and I repent because I don't want to break the heart of God. Romans chapter 10, he says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you confess and with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be rescued. So Jesus is on the cross. The last, one of the last words he said was, it is finished. What is finished? I have now, by giving my life, by having this sacrifice, what is finished is the law has been fulfilled. I did for you what you could not do for yourself. That's good news. That is the gospel, everybody. That changes everything. Those words change everything. Because it is finished, I don't have to walk around in shame that I can't fulfill the law. I don't have to make animal sacrifices anymore. Because Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. The first step into salvation is humility. And acknowledging that. That he did for me what I could not do for myself. Because even on my best day, I don't know that I can do all ten of these commandments with perfection. Because my heart is wicked. In yours? But through Jesus, he cleanses us. That's the good news this morning. I want to pray for you. As we close, our worship team is going to come. The thing with Israel was they had a very, very difficult time even following this law. This is why they had to have the sacrifices. But the prophecy was pointing to Jesus the whole time. These commandments will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked up a hillside called Calvary. And as he walks up that hillside called Calvary, Jesus lays his life down and in that moment becomes the fulfillment of the law so that we can have a right relationship with the Father. So Jesus, this morning, I pray over all of us, Lord, that it's never easy hearing that we're not good enough, but it is easy to hear that we are good enough in you, that you've fulfilled. You've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. 
And the invitation that you give us is you invite us to a relationship with you. You invite us into this space that is a place of forgiveness and of mercy and of grace. God, you, you are more than enough. You're more than anything that we could ever need. Your word actually tells us, God, that, that, when, that if we'll ask, you, you'll give us things that we've never seen, that you, you are a God that can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. You told Jeremiah that if he'll just pray that you would show him things that he's never seen. God, I, I pray this morning, our prayer would be that you would show us your love for us. That you would break our hearts for the things that break yours, that our sin would break our hearts, that we would fall into a place of repentance. Because we, God, want to stay in right relationship with you. And our sin cost you your own son. So, Father, I just pray as we as we sing in this moment that we will lift our voices, that the gospel demands a response from us because of the price that you paid, whether it's taking communion in the back or putting a prayer request or a confession to the cross. Or God, just even looking to the person beside us and asking them to pray for us, it demands some type of response. So in this moment, may you work as we know you will. And God, may whatever it is that you've been trying to tell us, we will hear clearly in these next moments. I pray these things in the name of Jesus.